Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project. Here in the UK it's just about beginning to feel like spring and the birdsong is returning and flowers are starting to bloom despite some very late snow into into March which uh, obviously those of you who are in the UK will have experienced. I've got a really exciting conversation today uh, which is focused on plants and flowers. It's a great time of year to pick up this interest or to revive it if it's something that you've done in the past. Today I'm speaking with Joshua Stiles, who's an incredible young man. Before he even graduated from university, he had a job with an ecological consultancy firm. He's been taken on as a volunteer botanical recorder by several of the environmental NGOs in his local area, and he's the founder of the Northwest Rare Plants Initiative, which is his effort to recover and restore plants and flowers in the northwest of England. He does this primarily by identifying suitable sites, working with landowners, and then cultivating specimens at home for introduction or reintroduction. But he's been growing his own plants at home since around the age of seven or eight, and he developed incredible botanical expertise as a teenager, which you'll hear about in this episode. At university, he was awarded for designing the campus's first ever biodiversity action plan, And our conversation therefore covers not only his favourite plants and his landscapes for finding them and some of the special places that he likes to go near him, but we also discuss what he thinks drives him to be such an accomplished self-starter and also an expert botanist. You can find out more about Joshua by following him at JoshuaL951. And you can find the Northwest Rare Plants Initiative website at nwrpi.weebly.com so that's nwrpi.weebly.com the wild voices project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature and we're part of wild voices media which is a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals As always, you can find out more about the podcast at wildvoicesproject.org and you can learn more about the global community of storytellers and amazing conservationists at wild-voices.org. Now, the introduction's over, so let's dive in to the episode. Okay, well, I'm going to start where I always start with people, which is by asking, where did your interest in the outdoors, nature, wildlife, plants begin? Um, well, well, my interest in the outdoors and wildlife in general began at <clears throat> quite an early age. Um, I was about six, seven, eight-ish, um, and I started to grow my own fruit and veg, Um from that, I was watching Gardener's World for a long time, um, and they um, suggested people bring wildflowers into their garden. So what I do remember at a young age is, is going to garden centres and asking my gran and my mum to buy me wildflower seed. They eventually did, <clears throat> and I grew a small patch of, of wildflowers in the garden. And I remember I was, I was sat down 
for for hours on end watching all the solitary bees and things visit the the the, the flowers in the, in the, this wildflower patch. Things like corn chamomile and and um, corn marigold and corn flower. Um, and I just remember being so fascinated. In fact, I was so fascinated, I dug up all of my vegetables and fruit and replaced my entire um, stock of vegetables and fruit with wildflowers the following year. <laughs> and, and, and I, I um, just, just from there, it sort of, it sort of took off. Um, and now, for a job, I... <laughs> I survey these things. I'm an ecologist, so so um, yeah, that that's that's sort of how I got got into it. It was a wise early career move. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> do you do you remember what it was that made you want to? I mean, you you transitioned from uh, from the gateway drug of fr- fruit and vegetables into <laughs> into wildflowers. But do you remember what it was that made you want to start growing your own? your own fruit and vegetables in the first place. I, w- I was really young, but actually I do, yeah. Um, my granddad was very into gardening, and, and my mum really, my, my, I'm, I'm from a single-parent household, and my mum she's never really been into it. Um, and one thing I remember is my granddad used to come to my house, and he used to plant sunflowers and, and, and sort out the flower beds in the back garden. And then one year I just decided as a young child that I wanted to grow sunflowers and I wanted to grow all these things by myself. (laughs) Um, And then uh, um, eventually uh, my mum actually gave me complete control over the uh, back garden. I have quite a large back garden. Uh, Aside from things like mowing the lawn and strimming and edging (laughs) and, and... Things that you can't trust a small child to do. <laughs> um, I, I had full rain over the over the back garden, and, and I still do. Um, I, in fact, not from from back then, when from from growing a small uh, patch of wildflowers, my back garden at home has over 200, 200 250 species of indigenous uh, wildflower. It, in, in in the just in the back garden alone, so um, yeah, it, it's sort of it's sort of grown over the years just from my granddad sorting out um, the the flowers and, and, and everything else. Wow, um, yeah, I was going to ask about the size of it and what kind of space you had to play with, and what were um, <coughs> what were what were some of the first species that you decided to introduce that you you remember in particular. Um, well, <clears throat> most of them were from sort of cornfield annual uh, and woodland edge mixes, common things that you find in uh, wildflower mixes, like red campion, um, white campion, you've got these cornfield annuals like cornflower, corn marigold, uh, you've got things like viper's bugloss, this big annual with loads of, of blue flowers that bees are really attracted to those were the first um sort of things i grew <clears throat> at the moment um most of my garden consists of perennial species just because um generally they're they're, they're easier to maintain and, and manage for 
Um, whereas the annuals tend to require a, a, a bit of a bit of disturbance every year, so it's a bit more sort of labour intensive. Um, and are these flowers that are fairly straightforward to grow in your own back garden, or you know um, how much how much technical expertise were you having to develop as a small child in order to men- successfully grow these? <laughs> well, well, many of the earlier things that I cultivated were, were really, really easy to grow. These are things from garden centres that that were prescribed to anyone who could uh, create a bit of bare soil and chuck a few seeds on. But uh, uh, from, from those sort of generalist um, seed mixes, I started to go and sample more specialist species. I remember at the age of about 14, I was growing uh, Utricularia. Um, it's, a, it's a carnivorous plant, an aquatic carnivorous plant that's very, very sensitive to, to chemicals and nutrients in, in the water. Um, and, and so I made this sort of transition from generalist to sort of being able to cultivate more specialist plants. And then eventually, of course, I, I have this initiative now um, cultivating rare plants that, that most of which are, are very specialist. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Um, so I definitely want to I definitely want to come on to the the amazing yeah. initiative that you're running now. Um, you've, you've also brought up one of the other things that I wanted to ask, which is you said you sat and watched the watched the solitary bees going between the flowers. So I wanted to ask firstly whether or not it was just plants that were of interest to you or whether it was more of a general interest in the outdoors and were you just in your garden or were you going out into the countryside? And then I also wanted to ask how did it make you feel when you were sowing and planting and growing your own wildflowers at home? Okay. Um well for uh, to be honest I, I do have a general interest in in ecology full stop. Um, I have an interest, general interest in all taxa, uh, from invertebrates to fungi to to plants and, and everything else. But but really, what I was more fascinated with than anything sat down as a child, I think, is the interactions between everything and plants. Uh, uh, plants are the fundamental basis of all life on Earth, bar. Um, ecosystems like hydrothermal vents, um, <clears throat> but but really they're, they're the basis of all life on Earth. And to see all of these invertebrates rely on these plants for their for their food to be for them to be alive, it it, it was it just completely fascinated me um, as as a child. I do remember that. So what was what was your follow up question, Matt? So um, I'll, I'll come back to the follow-up question in a second. Yes. You, you say they're the fundamental basis. Is that because they're at the bottom of each ecosystem or each food web? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, such a, everything really relies on plants to survive. Okay. <clears throat> and that's what fascinated me. Mm. Um, my follow-up question was how, um, how did it make you feel when you were gr- successfully growing your own wildflowers in your, in your own back garden? Um, it made me feel, <clears throat> I don't, I don't really know how to describe it, but, but when you go out in, 
to the field or, uh, and and go in and amongst a, a pristine habitat that is aesthetically ple- it's it's pleasing to all the senses. It's sort of I don't really know how to describe. It. I su- I suppose a sense of um, relief or a, a sense a sense of joy or or I don't good emotions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a good way of describing it i like that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all the positive feelings yeah yeah good things <laughs> good um so as you were be- um as you were progressing into more specialized plants that had more more specific requirements presumably you were also studying around your interests and building up your knowledge and your skills as well. Is that the case? Yeah, definitely. Uh, um, <clears throat> I mean, I've, I've got now uh, in excess of about 15 odd years um, of botanical recording and, and uh, cultivation experience. And, and, and as a child growing up, I think one of the most important things I learned um were not only my botanical identification skills sorry my my horticulture skills but it was also the botanical identification skills um when you grow plants you you see them not only in a state of flowering or, or when they're mature you see them as seedlings and you see them grow up so it was important from that aspect i suppose um and when i made the transition growing up um cultivating more specialist plants the the horticulture skills sort of came with it learning not to put something that likes acid soils in in alkaline soils or or something that likes nutrient poor soils in in nutrient rich soils and um yeah, if you, could you just elaborate on that a little bit? So I'm interested in, were, were you learning the identification skills through just growing them, or were you also going out into the field and joining groups or going out with other people to learn separate identification skills of plants plants and flowers uh, in the field? Sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so growing up, um, until I was in my sort of early teens, I did things by myself most of the time um and and um i didn't really get out into um being a local i I was a local wildlife site surveyor in my sort of mid-teens which which aided botanical identification but yes um growing wild plants um it's really really useful for botanical identification skills because as i say you can you can pick out things um, through all life stages. You can you can pick out uh, a devil's bit scabious when it's flowering with these big blue flowers, but you can then begin to pick it out when it's a very small seedling with with only you know a couple of a couple of leaves on it. Um, it's 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 a really useful thing to do growing wild plants. from that aspect yeah and were there any when you started going out into the field and doing your surveying and your recording were there any 
Well, I'd be interested to hear whereabouts in the country you were doing this. Were there any particularly special places or nature reserves that you were going out to? Uh, yes. Um, well, well, actually, until I was sort of in my teens, my mum never really let me go anywhere. And even then, she was hesitant about letting me go next door. <laughs> um, but, but I'm from a place called Sambach in Cheshire. And around Sambach, it's, it's a really peculiar place because we have all of these different habitats there. We have uh, these these say inline saline inland inland saline flashes <clears throat> uh, where basically salt extraction um, has produced a couple of habitats. It's produced these flashes that are saline uh, and wet and inland, um, but it's also produced. Um, another habitat called lime beds uh, lime was used in i think the purification process or something when when they used to extract the salt and then all of the lime was dumped in these big heaps around sandbach and, and and other places in cheshire so you get a mix of these inland saline bits you get the 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 semi-natural bits which i am i think it's sandstone around around me so it's rather acid and then you also get these lime beds which which produce alkaline soils so it's it's a real mix of habitats um around me so so i was i was lucky in the sense that i got i got placed in a really um quite botanically diverse area um simply because of the heterogeneity of of, of all of the surrounding places <clears throat> So that um, that heterogeneity, that mix of habitats, what does that do to the to the to the local flora? What kinds of different things were you finding? And do you have a particular memory of any plant or flower that you know when you first started doing recording really really struck you or really took your breath away? Um, yes, probably. What. The when I was early in my in the early days of botanical recording, I was um, I, I used to go through these nature books and and plant books all the time, and um, I was obsessed with orchids at one point, as a lot of people are who are into botany, um, and so probably the most memorable. Um, sort of botanical find near me was I found a common spotted orchid and it was the first I'd ever seen and I was really fascinated and I probably let out a little bit of a girlish squeal um, when I found it, yeah. <laughs> totally warranted. <laughs> um, yeah, there's um, orchids are among the few, the few plants that I can identify and there's a nature reserve, a wildlife trust nature reserve just down the road from from my dad's house that in the summer has a meadow that is just a carpet of common spotted orchids it's just absolutely incredible and I you know I'm not much of a plant identifier I'm not much of a botanist but I love to just go there and photograph them photography is one of my passions and it's yeah yeah it's just fantastic to go and spend an afternoon in this meadow photographing the orchids it's it's pretty amazing um oh you mentioned books there as well I wanted to ask um whether there are any particular 
books you would pick out for someone who was who was new to this or that inspired you or whether there are any mentors whether they're people you knew or people you kind of saw from afar who were were an inspiration or a help to you uh yeah well well first off on books um the book that i remember fond i still actually fondly um I've kept hold of it. It's in my bookcase here. Uh, it's the it's the Collins Guide to British Wildflowers. It's a it's a photographic guide, and and I remember as a as a kid just um, going through it, um, relating pictures to names, um, and then once I'd see something in the field, I could just point to it in the book and identify. It's it's probably what what really really got me into botany. Um, it's a really lovely guide, and, and I've never really been too fond of keys. Um, I know there's there's a real sort of um, compulsion to go straight to keys when you get into botany, but but to be honest, I really don't think that's the way it should be for beginners. It's keys are really dull and and boring. It's it would have really put me off if I would have got there first. Um, so, so sorry, just for the just for the complete beginner, could you explain sorry. what yeah. the difference is between a standard kind of guide and a key? Yeah. Um, well, for a young person or, or anyone who who uh, is just getting into botany, um, a, a dichotomous key, for example, stays is it's. Uh, a laborious method of getting to a species by answering questions full of complicated words in comparison to a picture book whereby you can associate a picture to something you've just found. Um, and although the key is the most effective method of getting to a species accurately, um, I think the photographic guide is... is it's it's more enjoyable um and and it allowed me to get into botany um much much more quickly than i would have done if i would have gone straight into keys um if in fact if i was if i was uh, prescribed a key when i was little i probably wouldn't be into botany now <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, uh, just going on to local, on to, on to um, sort of people who got me into botany. Mm. Um, what what really helped me as a, as a kid or as a teenager was I became I got asked to become a local wildlife site surveyor um, for Cheshire Wildlife Trust. <clears throat> um, the number of sort of experts that you, that you go out with. It's it's really good. It it, it really f- helped me further myself, um, not only in botany but 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 species identification in general. Um, being a local wildlife site surveyor and being surrounded by all of these incredibly knowledgeable people um, as a teenager, it really really helped me um, an awful lot. And so were you part of a group of surveyors for that site or were you the surveyor for that site at that age? Uh, well, local wildlife site surveyors, um, we tended to go out into 
groups um, to sort of gauge. I think it. I think Cheshire Wildlife Trust did it so perhaps they could gauge the level of experience and expertise that you you have, and then perhaps when they thought you were um, sorry, when they thought you were um, a, a sufficient level of uh, knowledge and experience, they could send you out on site visits on your own um, which in fact I did um, eventually <clears throat> um, so so it, yeah it can be in groups but it can also be individually and while you were learning all this stuff from the from the books and from the experts and from just spending time out in the field did you have a did you have a particular system for learning it were you taking notes and did you have any kind of specific structure to them or was it very much just kind of writing down what you were seeing and what you were remembering um to be quite honest with you i don't remember writing anything down <laughs> um for plants for me uh personally it i just remember names when i hear them <laughs> um and and i don't it's it's probably a rare thing, but uh, I don't tend to forget species names when I hear them. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so it's more just about the time spent out in the field or doing yeah. your horticulture at home. Just yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, I, I definitely think so. One one way that I has been integral to becoming um, a, an okay botanist is. Um, the Collins Guide, um, I just used to flick through it in my spare time and, as I say, relate pictures to names. Um, and then eventually, I'd learn common names first and then eventually I'd move on to the Latin names um, and then so on and so on and, and become a bit better um, every time I, I went through the, the books. <clears throat> so... Um, there's there's lots of good media coverage given to the decline of farmland birds in the UK or the decline of bees or the decline of butterflies. But are you able to say a little bit about what the kind of status of plants in general or maybe wildflowers in particular is in this country? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, to be quite frank, no one cares very much about plants in conservation most people are zoologists most people are concerned about the the i'd hesitate to use the word megafauna but the big things like uh, amphibians reptiles uh, mammals no one really cares very much about plants but but if you look at the red list in england one in three plant species is going through significant decline and not an awful lot of stuff is being done um, about it uh, on a national perspective outside of sort of nature reserves and, and sites of scientific interest. Not an awful lot is being done about it. Um, People are spreading nitrogen onto onto farm onto onto fields and onto places, which um, isn't doing an awful lot of good. And, and habitats are continually being lost from from agriculture and housing developments and, and everything else. And and um, 
yes, no one really cares an awful lot about plants in general. <laughs> so they're they're declining at sort of a similar kind of order of magnitude to some of the other groups that we have in this country, but they're getting less attention and effort focused on them. Um, I've got a I've got a number of questions, I suppose. What how much does that matter? And what I mean by that is, is the UK or is England particularly important for certain species of flowers and plants? Are there, are there some which are endemic or which are very scarce in other parts of the world that England or the UK is, is a particularly important country for? Um, yes. Um, we have a number of endemics in this country which are in decline. Um, we, we have in the UK around 4,000 species of plant, most of which, uh, many of which, sorry, are in decline. Um, you may not think that that is important, but I, I'll use an example. There's a plant called Heath Cudweed. Uh, in northwest England, well, nationally, for a start, it's 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 red listed as endangered, and in the in my region in northwest of England, it is completely extinct, bar a couple of sites up in the very north of Cumbria. Um, studies have actually shown that heath cudweed, uh, Gnaphalium sylvaticum, produces a, a compound called silverside, which is effective against cervical cancer, and so sort of. The very last daffodil could, as well as being aesthetically nice, the very last daffodil could also produce something that could fight the next big disease. Um, it, it, it has conservation has many applications, and, and plants aren't just there to look pretty; they do things for us too. Um, they give us medicines, they give us building materials, they, they give us um, beauty and, and everything. Else. They, they, they provide us with multiple um, sort of good things. <laughs> um, and so conserving them really is, is of principal importance. As I said, plants are the fundamental basis of all life on Earth. And so if, if plants suffer, then so does everything else. Yeah, um, just trying to think of where I want to go next. So, what's the conne what's the connection between the decline of some of our plants and biological recording and um, cultivation as well? How do those three things join up? Um, how? So, so how do how do bio, how do biological recording and the cultivation work that you do as well, and cultivation more generally, link to conserving and helping our plants and wildflowers? Uh, well, well, biological recording is is really important to denote uh, the the extent the the current distributions of plants, uh, and to denote any any declines or, or gains and and um, in in population sizes and distributions, but but really, um, cu cultivation of, of of certain species of threatened wild plant is really important um, because what's happening now, or what's happened now, is we've lost an awful lot of our semi-natural, good good flower-rich habitats, and so 
our floristically diverse places tend to exist as sort of isolated little islands that aren't connected to each other as they once would have been. And so on these islands that are flower rich, as soon as something goes extinct, uh, as would have been the case many, many moons ago, it could have just recolonized from a site next door. It, it can't do that anymore. And so cultivation I, and, and reintroduction, uh, well-justified reintroductions of, of species <clears throat> is important because when these islands of floristic richness, um, once important species on, on these islands disappear, they generally can't, can't come back naturally. And so cultivation is important to basically put them back um, and, and, and conserve the species and, and maintain a level of biodiversity. So cultivation allows us to, in a way, undo some of the damage that we might have done. It's not ideal because yeah. ideally we wouldn't be doing that damage in the first place, but it's a kind of remedy to having lost a species or having severely um, depleted a species in a place where it may have been. And it may, it may even have been only in that place or in a few places to begin with. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and of course, putting something back... Um, isn't isn't just the cure there's lots of other things that need to be good um for that species to stay there for example if if, if it needs to be um if a plant needs to be in a grassland that's grazed and the site it's disappeared from isn't grazed anymore that then then really um it shouldn't be put back there but but it's important to conserve these things because uh, things that are now extinct in my region, not only I want to see in the future, but, but I'm sure other young people like me will also want to see in the future. And I'd hate to think of someone growing up seeing something in a book and then um, EX next to it, extinct. Um, it, it, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so for someone who's listening to this, um, floristically rich islands is is really is really important, but it might sound a bit a little bit abstract. Um, I was wondering if, and feel free to take your time to do this. Could you bring that to life a little bit and add a little bit of colour to it? So, is there a place near where you are that's really important for wildflowers and or for plants more generally? And at the right time of year, what would that look like, that place? And what would someone see, be able to see if they went there, if they stood back and looked at it, but also if they had to look up close? And why should that place impress them? Or why should they think that find that place special or important? Sure. Um, well, I am next to the Sefton Coast. It is um, an absolutely amazing um coastline with an extensive dune system a sand dune system um in the summertime it is full of wildflowers and um of many different families um it is simply just beautiful um and it smells really nice <laughs> um 
it is it is a fantastic place um and i mean for mental health wild places have been shown to be um a positive thing um if if you go out into a floristically rich habitat the 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 emotions that you feel there will be significantly different to the underlying emotions that you have when you're in an inner city environment just the air that you breathe is is different and the smells and, and aesthetics of it it's it's completely different it's it's just superb when you go to a naturally flower rich place or, or, or plant rich place um to see and to to feel um and what, what are some of the most kind of impressive in your eyes or beautiful species that people might see on on the sefton coast at the right time of year well in in some of the dune slacks in 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 the in the in the wetter bits of the dunes um often in summer you'll find that a lot of them are covered in a very in a very regionally uncommon orchid called a marsh helleborine orchid it has these it has these rather big um biggish white white and yellow flowers with with um flecks of red on them that they're, they're fantastic things and and, and these dune slacks are, are in places are, are just coated with these orchids as well as several other species there are over 10 orchids on on the sefton coast near me um and um aside from that um there there are hundreds of other plants that just are fantastic. Um, there's a plant on on uh, a place called Ainsdale National Nature Reserve <clears throat> called a field gentian. It's endangered in the UK. Uh, however, it's doing rather well on on the National Nature Reserve, and it has these big purple flowers. It's it's a fantastic little thing. Um, there's there, there are so many things on the on the Sefton Coast alone that are just amazing. Um, aesthetically but then there are also other things that i really really like um there's there's one plant which is a grass it's called mibora minima early sand grass it's this minuscule inconspicuous rubbish thing um but but i'm really interested in it um because it's nationally rare there's less than 15 places where you'll see it in the country and it's also the world's smallest grass um so so Little inconspicuous things um, amuse me, but it's the Sefton Coast is is full of these um, a, a huge array of, of wildflowers from from big to small. It's um, it's fantastic. So you've described both um, kind of very beautiful sounding orchids and grasses, and you've also said how how in decline a lot of our plants and our flowers are. Do people are people if someone's interested in kind of starting out with botany or with flower identification, do they have to go, are they going to have to go far to get started? Or is there stuff that's going to be on most people's doorsteps that they can begin with? And how would you suggest that they get started if they're completely new to it? Maybe if they're like me, they're kind of, you know, they're a bird watcher, but they're, 
knowledge of plants is next to zero, where where should they start both geographically and in terms of, you know, what species should they start with? Um, well, if I'm honest, um, I just took my plant book with me um, whenever I went out with walks and I was just starting out. Uh, I, I'd take a picture of something that was really retrospectively something big bright and beautiful like for example red campion i'd take a picture of, of this wildflower and then i would take the picture back home go through my plant book and identify and and the thing is when you when you start identifying flora um everything in my opinion starts out as a green haze but when you begin to identify individual species it becomes far more differentiated and distinct and beautiful um and so so really for people who want to start in botany take a picture of big bright and beautiful things and try and identify in a picture book that's that's how i started anyway and if people are if people are doing that and they're they're struggling to get to an identification, even you know even with something something fairly common, they might not know that it's common, but it might be something that they see all around them. Are there places that they can go or people they can go and ask, whether that's in the real world or are there places online they could go to where people would be happy to help them? Oh yeah, there's loads of places um, online. Um... Under the hashtag Wildflower Hour, uh, every Sunday between eight and nine o'clock, you can you can post a picture of a plant and use the hashtag Wildflower Hour, and you will, if you're not sure about what it is, um, just ask. Um, and there are lots of botanists online, um, on Twitter uh, and on Facebook groups that that would be willing to help you. And in the real in the real world. Um, your local wildlife trust um, is, in my experience, my local wildlife trusts um, have been really, really helpful and supportive. And and there's probably also a local botany group near you as well. Um, so there are lots of places to start out uh, and, and to get help from if you need it. Um, yeah, I've just I just in the past couple of weeks signed up to my local wildlife trusts plant identification group, which hasn't yet started for this year because it's a little bit early, but are going to start having um, walks and events out at local nature reserves. So I'm going to go along to those and begin almost from scratch, not quite from scratch, but almost from scratch learning from people at those. So yeah, there's there's stuff there's stuff around if people want to go and find it. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, as as I said before, um, as a local wildlife trust, uh, local wildlife site, sorry, surveyor, um, when I started out doing that, I was surrounded by um, experts in particular um, species groups, whether it's plants or fungi or, or or mosses and liverworts or whatever. And, and and the thing is that you'll find with these groups is the experts that um, are often in these groups, I was quite intimidated at first 
Um, but actually, they're they're really really nice people. <laughs> um, they're in my experience, they're they're really friendly and and um, not. I sort of expected some some patronising old git to tell me to go away, <laughs> but um, that really was not the case, and and everyone was was really helpful um, and lovely to me. <laughs> so I wanted to so I wanted to move on and talk about some of the stuff you've done a bit more recently because you're um uh you're, you're correct me if i'm wrong sorry you're still at uni or you've re- you've recently graduated from university and while you're at university you won um a number of accolades for developing a, a biodiversity action plan for your for your campus and for recording the the species on campus and also even before you graduated you you developed enough knowledge and skills that you were taken on part-time by an ecological consultant company is that right correct me correct me if any of that's wrong <laughs> Okay, so so I actually graduated from university in July, um, but I have been in ecological consultancy for a long time. In fact, in my second year, I was employed as a casual member of staff to do um, bat surveys and great crested newt surveys, uh, and as well, phase one surveys, which involve um, plant identification. Um in in what I'm doing now is I am a um, an ecological consultant with my current company, um, and I was employed last March and I graduated last July. Um, but yes, that's that's correct. <laughs> so, just to dig into that a little bit more, because um, I'm sure there might be a lot of a lot of people listening to the podcast who are interested in ecological consultancy. How did you go about getting ecological consultancy work before before you'd even graduated? Which sounds pretty remarkable. Um, and I'd be interested as well how you split your time between the work and your and your degree as well. Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, um, I'd like to thank a particular book. Um, that I would recommend to everyone who wants to be an ecological consultant. It's a book called How to Become an Ecological Consultant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It it entails everything that you reasonably, you you know, you need to do um, to take reasonable steps to get to where you want to be. including voluntary work, how to sort out your CV, what what pay to expect um, in ecological consultancy. It, it just details everything. It's a fantastic book. Um, but besides that book, um, I was in, I am involved in a lot of volunteering work with my local wildlife trusts. I've I've led teams with Natural England. I've uh, done work with Martin Mia, um, World Wildfowl Trust. Wildfowl and Wetland Trust. Yeah, sorry, yeah, that one. (laughs) Um, I've done work with two wildlife trusts. um, And really the answer is a lot of volunteering um, to whack onto your CV to get um, to get a job and to get the knowledge and experience you need to to 
fulfil your role in in the job of ecological consultancy. So it's so it sounds like um, throughout your teenage years and your degree, you made yourself known to a lot of organisations and people in the local area. Do you think it's fair to say that you kind of built up a positive reputation for yourself, and that helped you to secure the the paid work as well alongside kind of the skills that you had it was partly building up people's awareness of you as a person and an expert um i I suppose so yes um well of course when you do volunteering with lots of different people um the environmental industry as a whole in your in in a local area has really hardly anyone um there and so the community is quite small um so you become known um rather easily i suppose um yes because because what you're describing kind of you know leading work for natural england and volunteering for wildfowl and wetland trust and for the wildlife trust it sounds like you you know, you really put a lot of effort into into lots of volunteering work, and it sounds like be, you know being taken on by a company was was thoroughly deserved based on the amount of effort that, and thought, clearly as well, that you put in. You know, you say you read that book, and you clearly were putting a lot of thought into how to secure the kind of work that you wanted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there aren't very many people, I suppose, working in environmental the environmental industry the 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 industry itself is quite competitive with the inclusion of ecological consultants in mm. and i'm a competitive person so i needed to be sort of um i needed to know how to um do it and, and get to the top <laughs> um how how i actually got my job currently is actually um over linkedin um i was up till one in the morning um actually sorting out my LinkedIn profile <laughs> and the next morning my current employer dropped me a message and asked if I'd like an interview and naturally I said yes. <laughs> so for you putting time into curating your career has been as important within the sector as building up the actual hard skills in, in botany and other surveying as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, really, I I did put a lot of focus on 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 building up a sort of I don't know social media reputation, but 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 really, a, a good reputation is followed by the work that you put in, and so that is that comes first and foremost, really. <laughs> mm, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, I want to, so the work that you put in to gain that reputation, I want to ask a little bit more, More, um, well, could you say a little bit more about the the work that you did on campus that won you, won you the accolades that you got? Oh, God, okay, there's quite a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm thinking specifically of the biodiversity action plan yeah. that I read about for yeah. the campus and of the biological recording stuff, but if you want to drop other things in as well, then please do. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so it started off, I um, 
was successful in an interview to become a research assistant for my biology department at Edge Hill Uni. So, so within this role, I had to basically help out a PhD student in botanical surveys. I did a lot of lab work. Um, I went and helped other PhDs do other things. Um, but, but in this role as well, um, in, in my own free time during this role, I developed a biological re records um, data spreadsheet for the university. <clears throat> uh, so, so in this, I decided to create a spreadsheet uh, entailing all of the biological records for the university, not just plants, everything. Um, and then, oh gosh, there's, there's, so, so I decided to basically go and sift through campus um, to see what lives there. Um, and actually, I discovered quite a lot of things. Um, I discovered a plant called tubular water dropwort. Uh, it hadn't been planted there. Um, and it is re it's, it's regionally very uncommon. Um, and it's also red listed as vulnerable, which is one classification below endangered. What, what uh, sort of plant is it? What's it like if it, I were to it's, see it? It's, it's a tubular water dropwort um, and, and it's in the carrot family. So it has these umbels of sort of little white flowers. Um, it's it's glaucous, so it's blue-green <clears throat> in coloration, and it's a wetland plant, so it likes really wet, wet places. I found it beside um, a, a very wet place on campus. Um, but, but also in, in, in collecting records, there were other notable species that were coming in. For example, I found, I found some nesting skylarks <clears throat> on campus. I found an orchid called a June Helleborin, which is not only endemic, so you can't find it in anywhere else in the world. It's, it's nationally scarce. So even in the UK, there's less than 100 places where you'll find it. Um, I found uh, lots of things on campus. And so following all of the this collection of biological records, about a year down the line, um, I, I got asked by grounds management staff if I'd like to... They, they, they had it on their to-do list, basically, to um, employ an ecologist to um, compose a, a biodiversity action plan. Um, and actually, it had been something that I'd wanted to do for a long time. Um, I know you, Clan, uh, University of Lancaster or Lancashire, uh, have mm. one. And so I took it upon myself to write one <laughs> uh, using this biological record spreadsheet that I'd composed. I decided to make a plan for grounds management staff to basically tell them how best to look after um, the campus wildlife, including some of the very notable things, the very notable wildlife species that live on campus. Um, what, one of those species I did mention, the June Helleborin orchid, the endemic and nationally scarce orchid. <clears throat> I initially found that in my first, or was it second year, um, that there were under 10 plants. I 
basically um, watched it throughout my time at university and a year after. So I've been watching it for four years. Um, it, it started off as less than 10 plants. It's in a car park. Uh, this car park was actually... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this car park was actually cordoned off because of a development um, that was happening on campus. Following the development, there were over 100. Uh, I'm just trying to get my figures straight. There's over 100. Um, And then following this biodiversity action plan, I got campus, I got my university to um, erect some signs telling people to keep off which surprisingly people actually did <laughs> um and they they also put a fence around it a temporary fence and and so from under 10 plants um following this biodiversity action plan um that there, there are over 250 last year wow um, yeah and and I'll just sorry I'm 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 going on a bit but no, it's fine. just to put this into perspective I I've said how rare this orchid is um to the, the the Sefton coast is the largest known population of June hellebrens anywhere else in the world there are I think 7000 odd in the last coast wide survey which was a couple years ago um and so 250 of this or of this uh, individuals of this orchid species in relation to the Sefton coast is notable it's a notable population but also in an Edgehill university car park um it's the, the where these orchids are it's not only notable in relation to the Sefton coast but it's a na- it's a, an internationally notable population, and so so lots of things happen because of the biodiversity action plan, and wildlife is is hopefully being better managed at university. But but the the case of this orchid is probably um, is probably um, the fortunes of this orchid is probably best affected by by the action plan. <laughs> That's pretty remarkable. Um, I was listening to, I think it must have been an episode of the Wildflower Half Hour podcast the other day, and they were talking about a former, it was a former coal mine in somewhere in the West Midlands, I think it might have been Sullyhull, um, and they found a plant there, um, a flower there, I'm, I'm not going to be able to remember the flower, but um, I think there were only two or three other sites for it in the UK, and they were the person who was being interviewed was kind of saying, well, there are various theories for how this flower actually got here, but the best one that he'd heard of was um, was that maybe it was birds on migration that had had transported it somehow. I suppose with the case of this dune helleborine, um, given there's a local population, it's a bit bit easier to explain how it may have got there? Yeah, it, I mean... The, the thing with the Sefton Coast is lots of importation of sand from the Sefton Coast used to happen. And so it's probably from that. Um, it's, it's growing on an underlying sandy soil under birch. 
Um, and it's, yeah, it's probably from imported sand. And in fact, what, one other thing I'll add to the June Hellebrin orchid story is before I discovered, my, my, my discovery of the Edge Hill population was the third inland record for Lancashire. However, since then, I've discovered three more. <laughs> um, and so it, it does sort of appear to be increasing. But it is, it is still very rare, yeah. Mm. That's good news. Okay, so you've um, you've described that you created a biodiversity action plan for your campus, and earlier on I asked you about the kind of status of plants and wildflowers in the UK. This is this is possibly quite a difficult question to answer, but if we were going to be managing our countryside, not just one university campus, but if we were going to be managing our whole countryside better for wildflowers and for plants, what are some of the things that we should be doing? um well i probably want something that's entirely unrealistic i'd probably (laughs) want um every farmer and every landowner um if they have put fertilizer on their the the thing is with nitrogenous nitrogen-based fertilizers is once you put it in the soil uh, it encourages um horrible horrible nasty uh, grasses and very competitive species to outcompete um these these more um the more delicate wildflower species and and, and species that that don't particularly like um high nutrient soils so the first thing i'd do is demand all farmers and landowners strip away the first bit of um nitrogen rich soil um, to decrease the nutrients of the soil. And then the second thing I would want is probably for all of the drains through all of the fields in the UK to be blocked up um, <laughs> and the entire landscape re-wetted. <laughs> but um, that probably won't happen. <laughs> but it might happen in... Um, you know, I think it's interesting that you say that. There might be places where it could happen, and there's a lot of... Um, oh, yeah. There's a lot of change going on in our agricultural system at the moment. Over the next six or seven years, the government wants to overhaul the way that agriculture is funded and put um, put a lot more emphasis on the environmental benefits that can come alongside food production through the funding that it gives to the agricultural system. And mm. um, restoring flora could be could potentially be one of those areas that benefits from this this yeah. shifted focus. Yeah, um, to to be quite honest, I'm rather pessimistic when it comes to um, sort of plant conservation on a landscape scale because, I mean, um, really conservation attempts at, at landscape scale tend to be quite feeble, dare I say it, Um I, I, I just don't honestly see um, landscape scale plant conservation happening. Um, is is there a reason why that doesn't work as well for? Is there a reason why it doesn't work as well for plants at a landscape scale? Is it because their needs are a bit more specialised or? Yeah, well, I mean, as I said about nitrogen, once once you add artificial fertilisers to the soil, it it takes a very 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 long time. 
um, for those for those nutrients to leach out of the soil. And so you're going to retain the same horribly competitive species um, in those nutrient rich places for a very, very long time. And the, the plants that don't like high nutrient soils and aren't as competitive are going to stay out of those places for a very, very long time. Um, so, so unless you turf strip huge, strip away the, the, the topsoil of huge areas, then really um, those places aren't going to get back to how they used to be if they were ever a want, you know, once a, a, a wildflower rich place. <clears throat> yeah. so, so it strikes me that that leads us on quite nicely to some of the more, um, correct me if I'm wrong, some of the kind of specialised intervention that can be done through horticultural cultivation, which is exactly what you're trying to do with the Northwest Rare Plants Initiative, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so one thing um, I decided to start because no one else would um, is I, 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 upon graduation, I actually was really, really lucky and I received a scholarship with some money. Um, and so with that money, <clears throat> I actually decided to use it to create something to conserve not perhaps not nationally, although many of them are of national conservation concern, but I, I wanted to create a conservation initiative um, for plants on a regional scale. And so with that money, I used it to create that. Um, I have, the, the aim of the project is basically to um, conserve and to reintroduce where appropriate uh, 49 target priority species that are on the brink of regional extinction. Um, and yes, that's what I've started. So in, in practical terms, um, again, correct me if I'm wrong and t talk me through this a little bit, but that, that partly means that you are cultivating, growing from, from seed, I guess, um, at home, some of these rare plants and preparing them for reintroduction at suitable sites which you're working with local landowners and managers and NGOs to select yeah um yes basically um for anyone who wants to know the, the sort of an overview of the full process they can actually go to my website um www.nwrpi.weebly.com uh, and on my website, there is a reintroduction protocol that I follow um, for sampling rare plants and, and cultivating them and putting them back into the wider landscape. But basically, um, yes, I, I go out and I get permission um, to sample very rare plants in the region. Um, I then go ahead and grow them, uh, whether it's from seed or some other sort of vegetative material. Um, for example, I grow a plant called um, marsh club moss. It doesn't actually reproduce by seed. It has it has spores. Um, in this case, I've had to sample from vegetative material because it's it's very hard to grow from these spores. <clears throat> um, following cultivation, 
um, once I have enough of a certain species, um, I then look at a huge list of potential receptor sites I have written down somewhere on my computer. Um, I go out and do a site suitability assessment. I'll, I'll see whether the site, for example, was a former um, place where this plant grew. I'll see whether it's uh, suitably managed. I'll see whether the plants that occur there now are common associates of the plant I'm cultivating, the rare one. Um, and, and, and if I'm satisfied, and, and the person I'm asking permission to introduce this plant, uh, if they're satisfied as well, with, with an introduction, I'll go ahead and introduce that plant. Um, following that, um, it will be monitored, the population. Um, and yes, it's... It's it's a hefty sort of process to to basically put these very rare plants back into the region or or, or help them in the region um, to prevent them becoming extinct. In England, each year uh, between one and two plants per county go extinct, um, which was actually the rationale for me to begin such an initiative to stop this decline. Of these very rare plants um i mean there's there's one plant that i grow it's an aquatic on on peat bogs it's called utricularia minor or the common name is lesser bladderwort it's it's confined basically in cheshire and lancashire to a little puddle um of, of moss on, on on one of one of the cheshire peat bogs it's 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 very very rare um, and so what I'm doing now, uh, or what I've done, is I've got permission to get some of this um, rare plant from the little puddle that it grows in to cultivate it and to, to introduce it to, to suitable receptor sites where it's suitable to, to introduce it. And I've got permission to. Yeah. Um, I've got a number of questions. Um, Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. It's really interesting. So... Um, I mean, the first thing that strikes me is that you said, you know, we're losing one or two species every year from each county. And that may not sound that important, but I think if, as you very kind of, uh, as you've described very well throughout the course of this conversation, um, a lot of these plants are quite rare across the country and therefore their loss from one county may actually be quite significant and cumulatively if we're losing that many from each county every year then that picture starts to look pretty bad across the country as a whole is that fair to say that's that's very fair um what i mean part of the rationale for for beginning such an initiative as well as the rate of extinction per county is also that plant conservation in general i mean in conservation as a whole, as I said before, it is, it is fairly animal-focused, zoologically focused. There isn't much of a focus on plants, but, but where plants or plant conservation initiatives do exist, they tend to be different in the sense that they're either focused on a very national scale of a couple of species or of a habitat, or they're focused on conserving plants in situ, so so on the sites that they're still present on. 
what I want to do with my initiative is to put plants back where they were, where it's suitable to, um, and to increase population sizes um, outside of sites that they're already on. Um, and so I suppose in that sense, the Northwest Rare Plants Initiative that I started is 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 very different and and in my own opinion without sounding arrogant i think it's i think it's something that's really needed um in the uk that that is much lack that is it's really lacking um this this plants are lacking this this region-wide conservation effort which um which i think we do need yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense so is there an example of um you, you say you've been going, is it less than a year so far? So is there an example of a plant which you've, um, which you've already had the time to introduce to a new site? Yeah, there's one. <laughs> um, so actually, I've been going much less than a year. I've been going since August 2017. Um, I've, I've formalised this initiative. Um, obviously, going into winter, things have been slow to grow <laughs> it's the dormant phase for <laughs> most if not all british flora um however i have actually in reintroduced one plant um which was at mere sands wood it's it's a nationally scarce plant called round leaf wintergreen pyrola rotundifolia <clears throat> rotund mean rotundifolia uh, round leaved um it became extinct on site or, or thought extinct because of scrub encroachment <clears throat> uh, by, by various willows. Um, and then basically Lancashire Wildlife Trust got some scrub clearance done. Uh, they've got grazing animals there now. And so um, it was OK for an introduction and it was OK'd by the conservation committee at Lancashire Wildlife Trust and so I went ahead and and, and, and reintroduced the plant. Um, what what I have at the moment uh, in the pipelines is there's a plant called Sheep's Bit, <coughs> Jazzione Montana. It's, it's vulnerable in the country and so that's one classification below endangered. Um, and, and in the in the county, actually, it's confined. Uh, the entire population of the county is down to two single plants. Um, and so, what I've recently had permission to do is introduce this plant onto a piece of it's it's a plant of acid heathlands and and grasslands. And so, what I've recently had permission to do is to put it onto um, a, an area of heath um, in Freshfield near, near, near Ainsdale on the coast here. It used to be present on the Sefton coast. Uh, however, it, it became extinct. Um, if, if a site gets encroached with scrub um, and it becomes very overgrown. It, sheep's bit is a plant that doesn't like that. It likes very open places. And so um, the reason I want to introduce this plant to, it's, it's called Freshfield June Heath, where I'm putting it, is because Lancashire Wildlife Trust has sort of recently taken hold of it and they have grazing animals on it uh, to, to manage the heathland and the areas of grassland 
on this reserve. And so it is now suitable for this very rare plant, um, which I'll be very shortly introducing. Um, there are lots of other introductions that are sort of coming up later in 2018. Um, however, as I said, um, things are quite slow to grow through the winter. <laughs> yeah. Um, this may be this may be a bit of a silly question. It may be that the answer is from your you know, you got this knowledge from your degree or just from having done cultivation for so long, but you're talking about such specific plants that in some cases are are really are really quite rare. How do you know what conditions they're gonna need when you take them back home and you're cultivating them? How are you able to provide the exact kind of right environment for them, not in the wild, but when you're when you're generating you know, enough individuals to then be able to introduce them to a new site? Um, well, it's it's sort of trial and error and, and mostly, mostly success. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, it's um, <laughs> in, in cultivating them. Anyway, um, when you begin to identify plant species, you notice that a lot, well, most plants exist in particular communities um, existing alongside other plants. And, and often certain plants exist in these communities with the very, with these same common associates, um, which can denote particular conditions. For example, whether a plant exists in acid soils, in alkaline soils, in wet soils, in dry soils. And so if you see a plant in a dry acid grassland and you know that it likes dry and acid conditions, well, I'll take some seeds and trial it in a mix of acid compost and sand and then I'll get loads of seedlings and, and it'll all be fine. <laughs> um, that's, that's, if you know the general habitat preference of a certain plant, then generally it's, it's generally quite easy to grow. Um, if you know something is, uh, for example, a sundew, I wouldn't advise anyone buys any peat because it's very environmentally unfriendly. However, if if, if you if you know that a sundew doesn't like um, nutrient rich conditions, you can get some peat uh, and and grow it in that because that's what it grows in in, in the wild. Um, these nutrient poor peaty wet soils, um, and again. Um, you'll 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 have success um yeah <laughs> okay that's good to know that it is just a little bit of um of trial and error um could you describe just very briefly what your kind of setup at home is like what what kind of kit you're using whether there's anything particularly specialist about it or whether it's just sort of seed trays and some various types of compost and growing materials um to be quite honest it's just a hell of a lot of plant pots and yeah it's it's just a hell of a lot of plant pots and buckets full of particular mixes of soils and composts and 
uh, with plants in them. Um, yes. And how um, many how many species have you got going on at the moment? Well, well, for my initiative, I have uh, just under forty or just under thirty-five. Um, Altogether, including my garden back home, it's it's probably well over two hundred and fifty odd. Um, yes, so so a lot to look after. Mm. Yeah. So, something that really strikes me from the course of this conversation is that whether it was your early kind of interest in botanical recording or whether it was the recording that you started doing on campus and then doing a biodiversity action plan for the campus or whether it was the North West Rare Plants Initiative, um, there have been a number of kind of key moments where you've just, almost without anyone else prompting you to, just take an incredible initiative and decided, well, no one else is going to do this. I'm going to do it myself. What What is it that you think drives you to have taken those decisions? Is it your passion for plants or is there is there something else there going on, do you think? Um, I don't know. Um, I want to see, if I want to see something there, um then that's the end of the story um and i want to see it there. i think i think i think what's important um to think about when uh you think about someone conserving something or some some organization conserving something um is once it's extinct no one else can see it and no one else can appreciate it the way that you do. And so if if you make it so that wildlife has a, I don't know, wildlife is, I don't know, more a place is more biologically diverse, then that means that other people can appreciate it. And I suppose that's, that's what drives me to conserve particular things, I suppose. <laughs> Is, is enabling other people to enjoy that thing as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, and also myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people, pe- people are innately selfish, so... <laughs> <laughs> there's a little bit of a selfish element to it. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, so it's officially... We're officially a few days into spring. What would you say to... Um, enthuse or encourage people to get out there now and maybe this weekend and start start looking for plants and flowers. Going back to that thing of maybe it, maybe it's their first time and they've never done it before. Um, well, lots of things are flowering at the moment. Um, even on the curbside, there's I saw carpets of a white flower today called called spring or common Whitlow grass. Um, there are flowers everywhere. And if you don't know what something is, um, lots of people are able to help you uh, on Twitter. If if you if you tweet the hashtag Wildflower Hour and say ask what this is, or or tag the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, um, that you know there there are lots of people to to help you identify things, and 
lots of things are in flower and it's really exciting and plants are the fundamental basis of all life on earth so you should probably um enjoy them more than anything else i do anyway (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a really nice sentiment and uh, there are there aren't enough people who listen to this that you're going to be inundated with requests. But presumably, if anyone's up in the in the northwest and they fancy learning a bit more about the the plants and the flowers of the northwest, they could uh, they could find you on Twitter and um, you might you might have the chance to show them some nice stuff. Oh yeah, uh, Joshua Styles on Twitter, and I'm out all the time. So if you'd like to uh, accompany me on on a site visit, that'd be um, that'd be great. <laughs> Cool, fantastic. All right. Is there anything else that you wanted to say or that I haven't covered? Um, yeah. Um, not particularly, Matt. No, I think that's everything. Cool. All right, Josh. Thank you so much. That was so interesting. Great. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation, and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org, on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.